My name is Michael Waits. And I'm Tanya Rowe. Awesome. Welcome to the Moneymakers podcast brought to you by Sophia. Sophia is an exciting new learning platform for women in Asia with a goal to increase diversity and inclusion in early stage investing. This podcast is a finance, innovation, and investing show for amazing women of all ages. Each week, we will feature an inspiring woman from the investment and finance sector or a female founder with a special focus on Asia. Our guest today is Alexandra McGuigan, the Global Development Director for 100 Women in Finance. Can I call you Alex for the rest of the show? Yes, of course. Alex, thank you so much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Can you give our listeners a bit of your background before we jump into the main conversation? Yeah, sure. So obviously I'm Australian. You can probably tell by my accent. It's hard to hide it. I am an institutional, by trade, if you will, I'm an institutional sales executive. And what that means is that I sell institutional investment products to institutional investors such as sovereign wealth funds, pension plans, family offices, etc. So I've done that for 15 years and I moved to Singapore almost three years ago with my husband and he's also another investor. He's a private equity investor and when I moved to Singapore, I joined a network called 100 Women in Finance because I wanted to build out my network in, in APAC a bit more and they have a global footprint. And then it just so happened that I ended up becoming the APAC director for 100 Women in Finance. And since then, I've been full of ideas and I'm now the global development director. So spreading the word for women in financial services. So what exactly is 100 Women in Finance, right? And what is it trying to accomplish? What are the goals? So 100 Women in Finance is the largest organization in the world for women in financial services. We are an industry association, but a nonprofit. We have a guiding vision, which is to see 30% representation of women in senior investment roles and executive leadership positions by the year 2040. And our mission is to empower women at every stage of their career. So we do lots of different things. We're present in 27 countries, almost 28 in four continents around the world. And we have 500 volunteers and it used to be almost like a franchise model. So These committees would run their own show in in the country or in the location that they are. They'd put on educational events and 100 Women in Finance provides the power behind that to do branding, help them set up the administrative stuff. We provide all of the technology. It's quite a different organisation in the last 18 months. We've really developed significantly since the pandemic. And so what happened was for the first time, by going from 100% in-person events to literally overnight going to 100% virtual events by virtue of the fact that we have an amazing CEO, a very stoic British woman who said we must keep calm and carry on and continue (laughs) to provide content to our members. And so literally overnight, we as a staff that were supporting these committees, we overnight turned into content producers and (laughs) like very different roles. And all of a sudden, we were able to unite these 27 locations around the world. And that was pretty interesting. So the member all of a sudden got 27 times the value. And we hadn't actually realized, I don't think, the power and the bird's eye view that we've had of the industry. And so a lot of these locations, like we would call them premium locations because they just have more members, 
but like New York, London, Hong Kong, you know, they're all major financial centers. But some of the other locations that we have committees in are very specific financial services locations. So for example, Dublin is very much a service provider location and because of the low corporate tax rate, you can set up funds and all of that kind of stuff. So the investment universe in Dublin is all based around servicing that need. Whereas in LA, obviously it's a very different thing. And when we were talking to our committees about how they were feeling about the virtual stuff, they, they you just have to keep this virtual content going because this was a woman in Dublin. She said, there's just no way that I ever would have been able to access the webinar that the LA committee put on about investing in music royalties. Right. Um, yeah. Because it's so specific, right? And so we were really able to then open this whole thing up. And so we have 22,000 plus registered members. We have, I said, the 500 volunteers and the locations in 27 countries and growing. So we currently have a grant by a lady named Debbie Zamayo who has given us a very generous amount of money to explore Africa, locations in Africa. Good idea. And again, Leda Braga, who is the CEO and founder of Systematica, which is a very big quant shop. She has also given us a grant. She's Brazilian, actually, by birth, and she has given us a grant to explore locations in South America as well. So very exciting time for us. I came to the, I think it was the summit, your week-long event last year. Yep which must have been almost a year ago. And it was really well attended, obviously, lots of institutional investors and fund managers, et cetera. What is the overarching objective of that event? And now that's finished, particularly as that was probably the first one that was fully online, what can you look back on and see what that achieved? What were you hoping it achieved and what did it achieve? Great question. And actually, it's a perfect timing because we have the second one coming up in a couple of weeks. It's called the Global Fund Women Week. And as I mentioned in the beginning, our overriding vision is to see 30% representation of women in senior investment roles, so portfolio management roles investing in the markets, or it can be an investment role within an allocated firm. There's different areas that, that we consider an investor. And the executive committee positions, because they are the most underrepresented, we want women from all the different jobs in financial services, and we have lots of different things to help everybody. But in terms of our fundraising and trying to actively change the demographics of the industry, we're focused on this specific area because these are the two positions that are the most underrepresented by women. So if we can solve for the most challenging piece of the puzzle, then we will have a multiplier effect throughout the rest of organisations. So in terms of the numbers, it's about 10% of portfolio managers are women. 10. That number hasn't changed in 20 years. That's what my job is now as the global development director, literally knocking on doors and asking financial services companies for money so we can, <laughs> we can invest in initiatives. I mean, I'm doing it all the time. I'm pretty good at it, actually, <laughs> asking for money. But all the money that we get, we invest in these initiatives, right? So one of the initiatives is this Global Fund Women Week conference. As I said, 10% of portfolio managers are women, yet they manage less than 1% of the global AUM. And statistically, they outperform, which obviously, Tanya, you know. So, you know so what, there's a few reasons why women don't get the money, and it's not just because of unconscious bias, but a lot of the time they have lower balances, and so there are structural mechanisms where allocated firms, and as I said, the allocated firms are 
sovereign wealth funds, pension plans, family offices, insurance companies, and foundations and endowments, those investors are institutional investors, right? So they have billions of dollars to invest. And sometimes the women have very small amounts of money. So it doesn't necessarily make sense or they can't even be more than 10% of a fund or there are rules in their investment process which prohibit them from being larger portions. So there's structural issues and biases at work here. But what the conference does is that we help female portfolio managers. So any female portfolio manager, if you're investing in the market, you are eligible to apply. And it's a two-week conference and we reach out to all of the allocators that we know all around the world and we ask them to pledge at least two meetings. So two 30-minute meetings with female portfolio managers. And so this year already, we have 550 female portfolio managers attending, whereas last year we had 200. And last year we had 300 global allocators and this year we're targeting 500. We have sovereign wealth funds, we have pension plans. There are 23 allocators from Australia signed up already. So we're really trying to make a difference and start to see funds flowing to female investors. You touched on something which is very close to my heart of when I was raising a fund, a VC fund, and being too small or too new is definitely one of the biggest challenges. So that's a structural challenge, okay, which is, as you pointed out, a different challenge to the biases, the conscious and unconscious biases towards gender. But the structural challenges are real. Yes. So how do you see a future that's able to navigate those internal structural challenges within the institutional investors? Well, you could create a fund of fund structure where a number of institutional investors can come together and say, all right, we're each going to invest $50 million. In order for this to work, we need to be realistic and say, all right, we've got to find women who already have a track record and some money under their belt, and they could be able to take $50 million or something like that, right? But if we can do that, we could get, say, a group of four institutions who each say, yep, I'll get $50 million, which means it's worth their time to do the due diligence and the research, and it's not going to cost them more. But then we could get four or six or whatever female fund managers and create a fund. And so each of those individual allocators could then allocate, say if it's $50 million each and it's four funds, then each of those female fund managers get an equal split of that. And then that means that the allocator is no longer going to have the lion's share of a particular fund. So that's one way of doing it. You obviously need someone in the middle to make that happen. People don't like fund of fund fees because there's two layer of fees. So there would have to be a mechanism where you can avoid doing that, but that's one solution. Another solution is when I first started my career, I was an executive assistant at the Bank of New York, Mellon, and I sat next to a wonderful man who was the global investment strategist who used to help me do my economics homework. Now he's the chair of Australian Super, which is a $220 billion fund. And I called him the other day and I was like, I want you to come to the conference. And he said, well, I could come to the conference, but I'm not going to give these women money, but I might try and hire them. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. And he said, the really interesting thing about asset management is that people say it's a great business except for the clients. So women find it harder to attract money. And so fund managers then don't put the marketing power behind them, right? And so to get a sleeve of a money, if you're working within a fund manager, it's also difficult. But maybe the allocators have a role to play in this 
in terms of training and developing and getting women in investment roles. And I think it's particularly interesting, having just had two children during your 30s or whenever you have children, you'd want a stable job and a big company that can afford to look after you or you want to work for yourself. But it's very difficult for small companies to support women. I was the head of investor relations for a hedge fund in Australia. Would have been very difficult for them to let me have 12 months off, come back for 12 months and then have another 12 months off because it's really difficult for the business. But a big allocator like Aussie Super, maybe that's definitely possible because there's more than one person looking after the portfolio. So maybe, just maybe, we can actually start to rely on allocators to develop female investment talent, give them money to run, give them a track record. And then when they're comfortable and have time and freedom, like now in my late thirties, maybe that's a time when you can go and start your fund. It seemed like a good idea to me. When you talk to the women in the network, right? 100 women in finance, what kind of feedback do you get? You just talked about your opinion. When you sort of aggregate all the opinions, right? What kind of feedback do you get for these women that want to excel in the finance world about exactly the kind of support that would have been useful in those stages, right? And I guess my other follow-up question is, should there be like a public-private partnership here where if that hedge fund wants to keep you on, very familiar with small hedge funds, that there's some kind of government support or some kind of public support so that you can actually do that? So it's kind of two questions. I'm really curious about the feedback that you get. You have 27 of these groups globally, 20-something thousand people. What do they say they would have liked earlier on? I know what I got. I'm curious what they want. I think it's very location specific. These are structural elements. There's lots of different elements at play here in this mid-career section, right? There's parental leave. There's government requirements. There's time that you can have out of the workforce. One of the biggest challenges is support and childcare. And so we're very lucky in Asia that we can have that at an affordable price and continue on to work. And so you actually find that there is a significantly higher participation of women in financial services companies in Hong Kong and Singapore during that period. Period of time. Right. Right. Yeah. During that period of time. The feedback is different from lots of different people though. And Women want stability in that period is what I understand. And a lot of the time, even if they're offered a job, so there's hedge funds that have told me we're trying to get people to come from the prime brokerage firms. We offer them equity in the company. We offer them great money, great terms, but they don't want to come. And I think it's because of the stability and they're like, well, I know that I'm in a big firm. I know that I have support here and I've been here for a long time. And so it's a bit of a long-term process really and there's not that many women in these roles currently so they're vying for the same talent and stuff and so it's tricky it's really tricky did i answer your question it does it just sheds an interesting light on the fact that first of all there's not a uniform answer to this Mm. and second of all that maybe it breaks down by region or even by city right i mean i presume that what a woman in la needs or wants is very different than what a woman in singapore wants or needs for a bunch of different reasons, but I think we have to talk about it so people can understand there's not a monolithic answer. Yeah. But there still are answers, yeah? Yes, absolutely. And I'm curious about this too. I'm very interested to learn more about 100 Women in Finance because according to some research that I've read, right, by HSBC, she's business research, it says that 70% of female entrepreneurs say that building a network is one of their biggest challenges for growing their business and even for growing their career, right? Yeah. I'm curious why 
building a network for women seems so much harder than it is for men? And what needs to change to make that easier and better? Well, that's easy because particularly in financial services, men just have networks by virtue of the fact that there are more men in the company, right? So if you go into an office and there's two women when you start, or even three women when you start out as a graduate and there's seven guys, then the women start dropping off as well, right? And so you often find yourself as the only person in the room. And if you're an analyst or you are in a job where you're seated at your desk all day, you don't have a huge amount of opportunity to go out and meet other people in different jobs in different companies. So you really kind of stuck with the people that you're in that environment with. So that's really why 100 Women in Finance started and how we grew and developed. So everything till recently, this is our 20th anniversary year, everything has happened organically because this need of the women to find other networks. So the story goes that in 2001, there were three women who met at a bar and (laughs) they worked in hedge funds and they were like, wow, you know, this is amazing that there's three of us. Maybe one day we could find 100 women who work in hedge funds. And that's literally how the name came about. And so we changed to 100 Women in Finance 2016 to incorporate that we were no longer just serving women in hedge funds, but women in all financial services companies. But really, the pillars that we have are education. So we host educational events and these are large events that historically would have had like 100 people in the room or whatever. And you go and you have some snacks and and a drink and listen to a fireside chat with an amazing speaker and then do some networking after. And then we also have peer engagement. And so we help women to find peer-to-peer networks, but we break it down by experience level and also by job type. So we have early career groups, which is less than 10 years work experience. And so basically what we're trying to do is help these women find a cohort of people who are going through the same experiences as them at the same time that they can rely on, even if there is no one else working at the company that they're working for. Right. So I was having a conversation with another woman on another one of my shows about this idea that you can't become what you can't see. Yes, absolutely. So how important is mentorship to you, but also to the other women in the network and even just at large? Because if your only choice, like you said, if there are 10 people in a room, two of them are women or three of them are women and seven of them are men, your chance for mentorship is just male, almost by statistical definition, right? Yep. So that also needs to be fixed as well, yeah? Yes. And as I said, with the money that we get from these financial institutions, we work on initiatives to change that. So 100 Women in Finance has visibility initiatives because absolutely right, you can't be what you can't see. And at one point, Amanda got fed up with conference providers saying, how can I have a female speaker? They just don't exist. And she was like, well, that's just not true because I know them all. I know 500 female portfolio managers and I'm going to put their faces on our website so you can find them when you're ready. Right. So we have that. So we have the Fund Women Visibility Campaign. And actually now there's about 600 female portfolio managers from around the world with their faces up there. And we want to give those women the recognition that they deserve. Because a lot of the time, and this is obviously a generalization, but if I put my head down and work hard, I'll be recognized for my work. Right. But you have to put yourself out there and if there's a whole marketing sleeve that you actually have to do to get recognized, right? So we give them the recognition and we make them visible for themselves, but also for the next generation coming through. So that was the first one. Then last year, we launched the Women in Fintech 
So we have a database and public directory of women who run fintech companies. There's a couple of hundred of them. And I'm currently working on the Allocator Showcase, which will be launched later this month, which is women in senior roles at allocator firms globally. So who work in investment teams, so CIOs or heads of asset classes, et cetera. So we've got 90 names that we will invite initially, which are women at CIO levels at these firms, and then we will launch it properly and invite more women to participate. So that's that one. And then hopefully next year we'll do an economist one female economist. That sounds awesome. I want to get back to something you said, because I think it's really important to point this out. I always thought when I was younger that if I just kept my head down, outperformed and did a good job, that I would get promoted and get paid more money. And I realized a few years in, and I wish somebody had told me this, and that is you'd never, ever get anything you don't ask for. Totally. And I teach this now to anybody that will listen and even people that don't want to listen. I teach them this all the time. If I say to you, hey, those are really nice AirPods. Can I have them? You have the right to say no, but now I've got a chance of getting them. Of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But if I never ask, you're never going to look at me and say like, that dude needs AirPods. Maybe I'll just take these and give. Never going to happen. No, exactly. And you can't expect people to read your mind either. And interestingly enough, when I was in Australia, I was the chair of a group called the ASPRA Emerging Leaders. So ASPRA is one of the regulatory organizations in Australia for the superannuation funds, which is what we call pension funds. Anyway, the CEO of, of that, organization used to work at KPMG. And he said to me that when he was a managing director or whatever, and when he was hiring his graduates, he had the ability to pay them between $80,000 and $100,000. Okay. Right. And he had discretion. He could choose how much he paid each person coming out of university. I love So these people are all people who have exactly the same, I mean, other than their grades, they've got no experience or, or anything like that. So he said that the women never asked for anything, so we gave them 80. And he was very apologetic about it because this is 20 or 30 years ago, right? And he said, you know, I, I had to save my budget, but the women, they never asked for anything. So when I offered them 80, they accepted 80. But when I offered the men 80, they asked for 100. So I gave them 90. And every year when they came up for review, the women were grateful that they had a job and said, thank you so much for paying me to do work. And the men were like, give me more money. And so they got more money. And that is how the pay gap starts. It's not that you come in at 35 with 10, 15 years experience and someone goes, well, the woman, you only get $150,000 and the man, you get $200,000. No, it happens incrementally over time. And you kind of have to pay someone for their new role similar to what they had for their last role. Yes, you can make the big jump upwards, but it's unlikely that someone is going to leave for a new job unless they get at least what they were paid at the last one. Or double, yeah, yeah, for sure. But can I ask this? I teach this. I explicitly teach this in all walks of life. If you want more fries, just ask for more fries. You may not get them, but you'll definitely won't get them unless you ask for it. I agree totally. But I also teach this money thing as well, and that is... Because I did it. I remember sitting in an office with my boss and he was like, your bonus is $50,000. And he was like, so happy to give it to me. And I remember just going, okay, like, it's not enough. Yeah. Like, it's just not enough. And he's like, why? I said, look at my shoes. They have holes in them. He's like, we'll buy some new shoes. And I'm like, I can't afford them. Just to go through that process of like negotiating back and forth, right? Yeah. But I teach this. Do you as an organization or even as an individual teach women, like, you got to ask for this stuff. Just keep asking. And you got to get used to no, too. Yeah. 
so we have our education events, which are very much investment focused. And then our peer engagement events are smaller groups where those committees, they put on things like having someone, a negotiation expert come in and talk about how to negotiate, how to ask for more money, how to do this. And so depending on what those women want or, or have access to, then they put on those events. Absolutely. But I'm totally with you. Sometimes you don't want to ask because it's uncomfortable, but people aren't mind readers, right? And you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Exactly. To play devil's advocate here, there is also a perception. So I've worked in many large corporates where, in fact, I can think of one law firm in particular where I was in charge of overseeing finance pay reviews for all of our lawyers. And I distinctly remember, and this is one of the reasons why I ventured down towards gender lens investing, because I saw that the women that asked for more or said that Mm -hmm. bonus wasn't enough or said that their salary increase wasn't enough, which was very few, I agree, and that's a problem. But those that did were seen as troublemakers or difficult women. It was distasteful to the men that were working with me as decision makers around how we allocate salary increases. The guys, no, 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 they're just go-getters and they're just Mm. ambitious and these women are just difficult. And so I think women are balancing that as well, which I think we should not overlook and suggest that women are just too easygoing and, and not pushing enough for sure. That's a consideration, but I think we shouldn't overlook that that has always been a traditional kind of thinking. Can I just jump in, Alex? Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah. This is why it's so important from my perspective, right? And I'll tell you where I get this from later. I think I've already said this to both of you, but that's why it's so important to get this to this 30% number even higher, Mm -hmm. because the women that are going to get there maybe in this generation are going to be perceived in a way that's potentially negative, but screw them, right? Not the women, the people that think that, because just get out of my way. Yeah. I get it. And that is the discomfort that's going to have to happen. But that generational change will happen. And for the people that do it, just like for the people that had female suffrage back in the 1920s or whenever it happened in the U.S., they were super uncomfortable too. And they were definitely troublemakers. Yeah. But no women that vote today are considered troublemakers. Totally. And it comes back to you probably are a troublemaker because you're the one or the two women in the room, Right. Whereas if there's five troublemakers in the room, well, you got to listen to them, right? So that's why it's so important. And and you go from being a minority voice in the group to being a majority voice in the group. And the best way to describe that is I have a neighbour who was in Norway and he went to work there. He was the only person who couldn't speak Norwegian, right? And so he's in a room with 10 other people and when the boss couldn't figure the words out in English, he just switched to Norwegian because it was only one person. It was only one person that had to catch up or meet up with the rest of the group. But if you've got 10 people in the room and then you have three people who then don't speak Norwegian, you have to start considering those people's opinions and those people's perspectives more. I like that illustration because it makes it very clear and shows the way that organisations change their behaviour when you go from that 30% mark, which takes you from the minority to the majority. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that brings us to something that's always in my mind around women in finance is succession planning. So how do we ensure that girls are coming through high schools, universities, and considering a career in the finance world? Because I'm looking at the stats and we've significantly improved in recent years. 
in terms of numbers of women in senior roles, in terms of numbers of women as fund managers or capital allocators, et cetera. But we're still talking very, very low numbers. Yep. I have a lot of focus on how do we attract women into these roles because we need to be that majority and not the mm-hmm. minority. And I'm contacted probably two, three times a day. Actually, two 14-year-olds reached out to me in the last week with businesses that they're launching. And one was 18, wanted to be a fund manager. It just blew my mind, you know, that they were this young thinking yeah. about it. But these are in the minority. And how do we ensure, you know, I'm a mother of a daughter and I want to make sure that it's an opportunity for her. I'm not suggesting that she goes into finance, but it should be a door open for her if that's the door that she chooses to go through. So I think succession planning is super important. Are you involved in any of that with 100 Women in Finance? Yeah, absolutely. So all of the money that we raise from our galas and events goes towards the Next Generation Initiative, which is a grassroots level to attract girls into the field. And we're starting at high school level because we want to expose them to what a career in finance might be. Because a lot of the time, They know what a doctor does. They know what a lawyer does, but no one really knows what someone who works in finance does. I mean, I know the asset management world, but I don't know what people do in investment banking and stuff like that. So I think that people have this comprehension or idea that it's just Excel and numbers. If you're going to go into finance, that's just what it is. But I'm a salesperson. I mean, you can probably tell, like I have a specialization in a certain subject matter, but you learn that at university and then you can understand the subject matter. But I use Excel to work out lists of people to invite to events. You know, it's not like working out formula and stuff like that. There are those jobs, obviously, but we have what's called impact committees and they go out to schools and universities and our members, women who have different jobs. So they might be in a sales role, they might be in an operations role, they might be in a funds management role. And they just talk to the girls about what their career is like, what they do, how to get into it, et cetera. Part of the money that comes from the industry, we offer free memberships to students. So it's not only one event that they go to, but they get almost like the song playing in the back of their mind by being on our mailing list and they get to participate in events. They can access women in the network, et cetera. So this is a huge focus of us, this grassroots level and building the pipeline coming through. I want to make a point and then I want to ask you one last question. This is not just a problem in finance. And I know you know that. Yeah. But I do think it has to be attacked by vertical. I want to read you something else that I came across recently. There was an article in The Crimson, right, which is from Harvard University that came out in 2018. And the title of the article was In Short Supply, Women in the Economics Department. And it was about this woman, Claudia Golden, who was the first tenured professor in that department in 1990. Wow. 1990. So she was the first tenured professor there. And the article says that in the 28 years since she was tenured, the economics department at Harvard has only added four other female tenured professors. And the reason why I want to mention this is because that means that 11% of them are female. And it's just like the 10% number in finance. Yeah. I just want to make a point that it's low everywhere. And part of the problem with that lowness is that if you're coming out of the economics department, you're likely ending up in finance. And it's the same problem, right? Because if you're a girl, I use the term girl purposefully as a 17 or 18 year old, and you go into an economics department and just see male professors, you're going to drop out in the same way that you're going to drop out of your career. It's the same problem everywhere. Totally. 
so we have a job board for our members. And interestingly enough, the jobs that have a man who people respond to, significantly less attractive than if the job posting has a woman to reply to. Because women want to know what it's like for a woman to work in that organisation. So if you don't have any senior women in your leadership, it's going to be very difficult for you to attract Mm. them. Even if you want to change the demographics of your organisation, you have to have the top reflect what you want your workforce to look like. Completely agreed. Look, I always say nobody wants to walk into a room where they're the only person in that room that looks like they look like. Interesting. And just a final comment on that. Go. Our events are open to men as well, but usually with the name, they (laughs) self-exclude. But, you know, maybe we're hosting an event at JP Morgan and we invite the guys come down and maybe there's one or two of them in the room. And quite often it's the person who is, you know, the sponsor. And so they say a few thank you remarks and they often say, this is the first time I've ever walked into a room where it's all women and it's intimidating. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. So he goes, I can actually understand what it feels like for a woman. I just don't think that they realize that this is what it feels like if you're the only person in the room. And so if we can get more men involved in this conversation, then we're going to have a much better chance of solving the problem. Absolutely. Okay. I think that's a great way to end. We really appreciate your time today. I cannot thank you enough. Of course. Alexandra McGuigan, the Global Development Director for 100 Women in Finance. That was awesome. Thanks for having me.